Andy Farnell is a British computer scientist and author who is a pioneer in sound design. Reading his latest book, Digital Vegan, gave me profound insights into the challenges we face in relation to creating truly sustainable and equitable technology. It has clear paths forward, which involve a greater belief in humanity and that we can do so much more with so much less. I started our chat by asking Andy to explain a bit the process of what happens to a digital product after it becomes waste. You can take apart many electronic devices and you find that they're made of components. And these, you know, components historically is how electronics has always been made. We've had like radio valves and transistors and then integrated circuits. And generally they're soldered together using um, a molten sort of lead or tin these days um, on the uh, on the board. And you know, what would happen in, in the old days is you would strip down electronics to to reuse the components so we would take off um integrated circuits and to the extent that uh, electronics is modular and so many pieces of modern electronics are modular uh, we could take out say a camera element which has got an spi or an i2c bus standard kind of connector and put that aside um for use in another constructing something else so electronics hobbyists and electronics repair people um, to the extent they still exist, <laughs> have always had this um, relationship with with electronics. Is that you can take it apart and you can reuse reuse the sub assemblies and and so on. Um, <clears throat> now, when we come to recycling modern goods, rather li- little of that happens. And if it does happen, it it happens very early in the chain, after um, the the goods have kind of been received by uh, like a warehouse are going to then say okay we can take that display off we can take that those loudspeakers off we can sell them somewhere else we can put them back into the market or reuse them Um, so there is a kind of market in that but it's diminishing and I think probably heading towards non-existence now Um, most of the smaller goods um, uh, Let's distinguish them from white goods to begin with, because that's a different matter. Those things like washing machines and tumble dryers, and it's made of steel. Um, it can be taken apart manually. It can be sort of the bolts can be unscrewed and things in in seconds with kind of the right machine tools. And so that has a much better recycling prospect. Uh, things from the magnets, uh, neodymium, um, cobalt, things that are in the um, uh, larger assemblies of white goods can be stripped down and um, have a much better recycling prospect. But then all of the other stuff, you know, the digital cameras, phones, tablets, laptops and whatever, this is a different kind of e-waste. N- nobody is going to bother to try to reclaim that at the component level. So what happens to it? Well, you know, it most of it right now, almost all of it, is getting shipped abroad, so it comes over on container ships as good, you know, goods for us to to use as new. It, it has an sort of average lifespan of about eighteen months, which is shockingly low. Um, and then those phones and tablets go back into containers, and they're taken uh, to where the labour cost and the environmental regulations are are low enough uh, for them to be processed in in a, in a ec- economically. Uh, viable way as they would say so 
Um, first kind of step that's going to happen there is um, a lot of it is just shredded. It's smashed to pieces. Um, and so that process is sometimes, you know, it's machine like you use things basically like giant wood shredders, you know, um, it unleashes an enormous amount of uh, particulate matter, uh, microplastics just spewing out of that, um, heavy metals, um, anything that, 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 those, that those goods are made of, including the forever chemicals, the um, uh, phenol, uh, multi-polyfluorinated um, hydrocarbons, things like that. Um, it was going to make a miasma of dust. But but worse is when it's not done by machines because who's going to do it? It's it's usually young kids, you know, um, employed fourteen, fifteen, sixteen year old kids, literally with sledgehammers smashing this stuff up. You know, you've got uh, cathode ray screens being broken and the, the dust comes out of that. So we've got this pulverized mess, and what we're going to do with it now is is to is to extract the metals from it, which means washing it with acid. Uh, like aqua regia type uh, um, nitric acid, sulfuric acid, uh, and also things like sodium cyanide uh, compounds, which will um, will pull out these metals yeah, um, into a slurry. And, and then the very difficult task is to separate the, the, the valuable metals from it. So there's several techniques. You know, there's kind of staged precipitation where you can use different compounds which will cause say the gold to, to precipitate out or the, the silver the copper or whatever or you can use these resin columns which are um, like big chromatography columns which uh, will, will attach they'll attach the um uh salts uh, to the to the right part and then you can wash that off and reuse them and then there's this new technology um which is kind of been it's it's old, but it's kind of been made real in in Canada, uh, which is electrostatic precipitation. And um, so we have in the West much much better ways of doing this, which you know child labour is doing on the shores using literally burning stuff in a bonfire and and um, pouring drums of acid onto it, and it's leaching into the sea and stuff like that. And it's all ending up in the lungs of those children who 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 really have. Um, uh, a very poor uh, prognosis, I would say. I was just thinking of there, as you were saying, you know, which which was a worse profession, the chimney sweep or, you know, the, the, the e-waste recycler. You know, probably the chimney sweep was a, was a safer profession than, than the child, you know, um, breeding in this, this, you know, really dangerous toxic dust. Yeah, it's such a, a mixture of different forms of toxicity. Um, there's a bioaccumulative toxicity of things that are going to get into the fatty tissues, uh, going to stay in the in the bloodstream for decades. And, and those kinds of things have you know genetic mutagenic effects. And they're often you know if the children survive into adulthood, then they're going to have um, children uh, with problems and. Uh, you know, that's a kind of a, an issue on the radar is around these recycling plants and this whole industry is an uh, enormous number of, sort of birth defects and, and low IQ um, kind of outcomes for children. So that's not good. But then there's this sort of the immediate toxicity effects that um, you know, metal fume fever, um, you know, any kind of things like lead and, and so on will, mercury, 
will will cause Im- immediate cognitive kind of impact. So you know these um these these kids have got uh, no real future educationally if they manage to get out of that kind of um uh, it, you know backbreaking and 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 toxic sort of industry. Um, um, and then there was the the sort of non-human aspects of the again things that are getting into the water table, um, which we'll talk about, I guess, soon as well. It gets into the water table, it gets into fish, it, it, and then it's recycled back biologically in, into um, uh, human food chain. Uh, so people who are not in the immediate vicinity of the recycling plant are, are then you know, having to eat um, uh, poisoned produce. You know, somebody was writing a report that, you know, that it, some of it, um, is coming back to the places that send it, you know, in a, a certain type of karma that 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 fish being caught and and eaten at European tables were showing trace elements of, you know, particularly the the fish that had started or spawned in 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 the the seas of North Africa, you know. Um, so there's there's it never goes away this so a, a lot of it as you you mentioned there the forever chemicals a lot of this stuff never goes away it it um you know or or you know stays for a long 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 time you know any senses of of, of that the length that some of this stuff is likely uh, to stay well, I suppose if it goes into the air, it'll probably end up, you know, ultimately moving to the land or the water. But, you know, when it gets into the soil or or, or water, um, it doesn't just dissolve, does it? This A lot of these uh, materials are forever materials in in the soil or, or, or will they degrade over time, most of them? Well, elemental materials will not they they will stay forever because that's the nature of matter it's it's not destroyed so if we take say a cadmium salt or something a heavy metal salt um that's going to stick around forever but you know it's not necessarily going to be hazardous in that form so it may be it may form a a stable um and a, a salt that's not going to circulate too much it'll kind of become bound or attached to um to something um on the other hand, there were you know the many organic chemicals um, that we've mentioned. These bromofluoro um, things that are used in fire retardants and, and things like that. They got a kind of half life of, of hundreds of years, and they're very volatile. So they'll keep being kind of if if you like um, raised from the ground. Um, uh, that they, they can seep and leach and get into water and get, circulate around the oceans and. Um, uh, and then there are things that are simply very durable. I mean, plastics. Um, so, and then the problem with microplastics is that you know the more that you leave them, the more that they abrade and break down into smaller and smaller and smaller uh, chains, not until they're just even single little polymer chains. And and it's turning out that they are they are super efficient at getting around. And there's almost nowhere left on Earth that there aren't there isn't microplastic pollution it's in um lots of animal life it's in uh, the uh, you know an- arctic and antarctic ice sheets it's on the top of mountains um it's at the bottom of the ocean in the mariana trench you know this stuff is 
it's everywhere. Um, but the um, potential toxic effects of that are unknown at the moment. So that's kind of a little bit scary because there's an unknown there. But then it might not be so bad um, that these things that, that, that um, didn't necessarily exist before do exist. Um, now, that, going back to the old George Carlin sketch, you know, and he says, um, well, you know, hey, maybe the planet, that's the only reason the planet needed us was to make plastic. Now, it's it's the Earth plus plastic. Um, uh, so it's it's not like it, it's a completely unnatural thing. I mean, in, in a sense, nothing is unnatural, right? Because you know, it's it's a byproduct of, of sentient um, humanoid life is that we make plastic. Who knows what that pretends in the future, whether it bodes ill for us in terms of health or or whether it, it causes some other event, you know, like a new a new form of bacterium or something that, you know, finds it, uh, that it can live in these polymer, small polymer chains or something like that. There's a big unknown surrounding uh, microplastics, really. Yeah. And, and I suppose the thing is, we don't know. So it's, it's like uh, we're gambling uh, with, you know, the future of life, um, hoping that it'll be relatively benign. But if, if it behaves in the same way as the macroplastics behave, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's not going to be good, you know, or, or it's unlikely that it's going to, you know, help life for flourish, uh, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. I don't think there's a, there's much, there's going to be good, you know, it's just how bad, how bad is it going to be? Yeah. You were, we were talking about the the children earlier, and these are children in Pakistan or children in in Ghana. And I, there was a UN report, I think, last year that estimated about it's eighteen million children, or either thirteen million children and eighteen million women, or you know uh, the other way around. But it's a substantial number of people um, who are the informal recyclers, uh, so to speak. And and this uh, is, you know, the obviously the technology industry is very aware of this uh, and the governments are very aware of this. Um, we just don't care. You know, is, you know that's uh, another burden that the Global South needs to bear for the lifestyle of the global north is that that's in essence is it you know because there's lots of evidence that that this is constantly happening and there's there's half attempts to address it but there's no real serious attempts to address it or 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 do you you know or what what you're talking is it you know basically we 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 dump our waste this toxic waste on poor people is that the basic strategy? Interesting things are happening. I mean, the fact that we're having this conversation is very important. Um, there are changes afoot in, in lots of parts of uh, the regulatory frameworks around the industries. The most exciting thing that I've seen this, this week was um, the, the Royal Mint in, in Britain um, talking about um, a massive recycling scheme using a, a new technique, an electrostatic separation technique, uh, to remove gold from e-waste. Now, I've kind of always said that if you were a really smart person who wanted to make an investment uh, for uh, well outside the scope of your own lifetime, you know, for your great-grandchildren, is to buy landfills. 
because that's the prime mining ground uh, for the future, at least the early ones into which lots of electronic waste went before it was illegal to, to dump it there. Um, the you know the Royal Mint have kind of realised that the economics of the gold that can be recovered, um, gold and platinum, in fact, that can be recovered from uh, e-waste is it's 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 worth it. It's worth keeping it here and not shipping it back and processing it um, here in the West uh, to to recover those um, uh, rare metals. So um, it, it's not like this isn't on anyone's radar. Um, I think you know we're wa- raising awareness of it in in what we're talking about today, and and hopefully it's going you know there's going to be more changes afoot. You made a really interesting point um, in the intro. This is multiple really interesting points, but one of them about the historical um, um, repair or, or disassembler of technology that you know you could pull components out and is there any way that we can either legislate or so that we return to uh, designs that are much easier to disassemble that are are much more environmentally dis take apartable uh, or is this an inevitable part of modern products um, because of their um, smaller size. Um, like, is this just uh, modern technology is is designed to be art destructive or, you know, older technology was much more genuinely circular economy about whereas what we're dealing with in uh, an iPhone or a, a Lenovo laptop or whatever is things that are among the the least uh, have among the least capacities to be part of a circular economy and, and if there are is there any way we can we can get back to a a genuine circular economy for electronics, or are we trapped in this this waste, this toxic waste cauldron for for modern electronics? And there's so many points to um, to, to uh, distill out of that. So let's just um, uh, think about what this electronic stuff is. And it's it's nothing but cleverly organised sand. The, the miracle of the semiconductor industry is that it's made from silicon fundamentally the most abundant element in the planet after oxygen i think so you know most of the planet's got like made of of sand in one form or another flint whatever um so this incredibly super super abundant element um means that in the limit in the limit the cost of technology tends to zero which which is staggering. You know, we've been coming to terms with that for the past fifty years at least. That things just not only get smaller and smaller and smaller, but really, if you look at the economics of the scale of semiconductor production, they get get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Um, so there is this, you know, incentive to just it's it's a solution looking for a problem. It's it's an industry that's overproducing, and so we're just putting electronics into things. We're looking for places to put it. It's a push market, right? It's not demand driven. 
Um, the other thing is, is that it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So in the limit, it kind of has zero cost and it disappears entirely from view. You know, the, the, the um, pieces of electronic equipment 50 years ago were, were pieces of furniture. You know, there were, ob- were items and objects within your household that you could see. Um, modern electronics kind of does this vanishing act. Um, so you need to bear in, in mind those, those two factors in terms of what, what that means for uh, recyclability. If something goes to zero cost, then there's no margin, there's no point left in, in recycling it. You know, you may as well treat it as that the sink is the environment. It just needs to be washed away when I'm done with it. Um, the, in terms of size, um, as things get smaller and smaller, they're now well beyond. I mean, I used to fix electronic equipment. Now, um, what, 10 years ago when I was working with the smallest surface mount um, devices, I needed a bench microscope just to be able to, to see what I'm doing. Now, you know, you need a kind of times 100 bench microscope because and, and if you sneeze, you literally um, blow away a thousand pounds worth of components. So um, it's beyond the capabilities of, of the human physicality our fingers, our eyes, and so on, to, to deal with lots of this electronics. Um, it, if it's going to be disassembled, if it's going to be recycled, it needs machine, it needs robotics, it needs machines and production lines to do that. So um, what's the answer? Well, the answer is, is, is it's a cultural change that we change uh, towards modularity uh, in that these things are designed right from the outset to sort of plug together very much like little Lego bricks. Um, and there are many initiatives, many engineering projects, um, kind of bit that have been going for a long time and are still are ramping up now to change the way that the electronics industry operates, to change the way that assembly is done, to change the way um, that components are combined together. So there's a big incentive to do sort of just-in-time or last-step configuration. Uh, people used to build their own PCs, right, to build a, a computer by getting a power supply and a motherboard and a thing. When, when now that, that modern, that PC is kind of the size of a, a matchbox or a sort of packet of cigarettes and the bits inside it um, are, are just, um, you know, sort of uh, size of small Lego bricks. But you can physically still just put them together. Now, what that means, say, for things like phone assemblies um, is that they can be repurposed. They can be um, disassembled and reconfigured um, by the end user or by kind of um, you know workshops in, in the in the economy of the countries that they end up in. Um, so it, it's, it's a very different way of designing that needs to be done, and that will only work if it's based on a culture of valuing. Um, uh, the, the components and their functions, so valuing um, memory chips, valuing um, a, <clears throat> a radio transmitter chip, and so on, as a, um, uh, something of value in itself, <clears throat> which and, and, and that that won't happen unless you have widespread interoperability legislation. So there's this very difficult thing to to sort of put together where you need to get the culture change, and you need to get the legislative change, and you need to get the engineering change all happening at the same time um, to push us into this different system of manufacturing reuse. You said there as well about cost. It, You know, the cost is going to zero, but maybe that's because of the cost model rather than the actual cost. Like, we know the cost to those 30 million poor people. We know the cost to the water system. We know the cost 
to Chilean farmers, you know, in, in the uplands where, where the lithium mining is occurring or in the western lowlands, to the western lowland uh, gorillas where coltan is mined or to the Taiwanese farmers who don't have enough water because the water's going to the chip, you know, uh, plant. The, you know, so there's, there's lots of costs. We just don't measure them. And I think it, maybe we need a, a different sort of cost model that actually looks at the total cost of this, not simply the cost to, you know, just manufacturing, you know, the, that for Intel or otherwise, maybe our, maybe our costing models are all wrong. I think they always have been, that, that these grotesque externalities have always been part of industry. I mean, since the Industrial Revolution, we're much more aware of them now. Um, and yet, how do we bring those in, um, which will provide further incentives to reusing components? Uh, and ver- the standardization and the interoperability stuff is so important for, for other reasons, right? It's It's liberating... Um, it breaks down monopolies, you know, it um, provides opportunity for innovation and for new companies to spring up using reconfigurations and reuses of, of old technology. Um, it, it's so enabling um, for the economy in, in other ways as well. So it's something we really want to move towards. Yeah. Do you think young people are actually aware of these issues in in uh, the st- extent that they need to be? And also, you know, a point that you made in your your your, your excellent book, um, you know, the, about the need to remove technology from schools, which seems like a like a heretical thing for a, a technologist like yourself uh, to be proposing. But that, you know, what we need is, you know, um, maybe less technology in schools and more education with our young people about the the entire awareness of 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 living and the impacts are you know maybe you'd like to say something about about those those topics well well this is a huge huge cultural subject it's um it's no longer about e-waste e-waste is a a symptom of um a, a, a culture a society a way of doing industry that we we live in um which we know is not sustainable um, which we know has profound um, mental, psychological, educational effects on, on, on us. Um, the, the depression, the teen suicides, the sort of anime and alienation that's all come from what ostensibly is a wonderful thing. This is brilliant technology that's supposed to bring us all together and revolutionize the world and, and, and so on. And that, that's not what's happened. You know, we can. I can look back in my life in fifty years and remember the optimism of being a kid growing up playing with electronics in the seventies and eighties, and then seeing now that the those tools of the enabling tools have been turned around to become tools of uh, control, uh, monitoring, um, very dystopian kind of cybernetic governance model. That's that's um, it. You know. Uh, even the father of cybernetics himself, Norman, Norman um, Weiner, said, um, uh, you know, he, he was really against it. He kind of likened it to eugenics, uh, said that this is a dark path if you start to apply this so- socially. Um, so there's, there's that side to it in which young people are utterly lost in their relationship to technology. 
it's not something that they feel that serves them. It's something that they feel they are um, already enslaved to from very early age, the kind of behavioral paradigms that they see. Um, the the addiction that their parent you know, their parents will be on the phone almost constantly from the moment that they're born. They they have to compete with the phone for uh, attachment needs, um, and so yeah, there's this um uh, bit this big picture if you like sociological or psychological relationship between young people and technology now that you have to take into mind before you can even start to think about these questions. Um, they. You know, there's a total absence, as far as I can see, of teaching about technology. And, and my tagline is that we should teach our children about technology and not allow them to be taught by technology. Because what's happening is that technology is replacing the teachers, of course, because it's, you know, it's efficient and uh, they, they can use lower skilled people and just give the kids a tablet and some you know, Microsoft software or something. And, uh, you know, and they're, you know, they're, then they're brand loyal for life, right? They're drawn in. But also you can, you can mine them for data, psychometric data, which is part of the surveillance capitalism and the whole kind of cybernetic machinery. Um, so, so there's not a there's not much that's a positive a positive relationship there um between young people and technology at the moment uh, and i think before we can move forward with these environmental questions because we're going to depend on their on them on on their um uh their behavior in the future we need to win back hearts and minds that way we need to for the children for the kids to take back tech they need to feel ownership and um, stewardship and sort of um, some some control in in how in their relationship to technology. And, and at the moment, it's going completely the opposite way. Technology is becoming something further and further from their their sphere of influence. I think maybe connected with that, um, we need them to a kind of take back their environment to some extent, in in the sense of. You know, a lot of people when I t talk to them about, you know, my book Worldwide Waste or, you know, digital and stuff like that, they literally do think it's all in the cloud. Like uh, that, there's this disassociation or increasing disassociation um, and, and separation. You don't see, you know, um, the impact of what you do or, you, you know, you don't see yourself walking in the sand you don't see your footprints you know you you know you, you're disassociated uh and there's no sense of the material or either the technology or the that that you are a kind of an a, an actor within your environment impacting that environment so, so you'll see it you know uh demonstrations for you know, which is which is good for the environment and so young people, but them taking tons and tons of photos uh, and uploading to the cloud and latest devices, and you know they're they're pro the environment, but they don't in any way think that that this device they have in their in hand, you know, or or all those tens of thousands of photos that is being taken has any impact. I absolutely agree with this. It's um this sense of disassociation um well on many levels the psychological um process of dissociation you know which is not being present um it is a you know that's an aspect of the use of technology 
but then the physical the physical technology itself the lack of association of what you do with anything material it's utterly abstracted and, and like as you say kind of the when the when um, there was a study done and uh, several hundred children were asked to draw pictures of the internet and they kind of drew clouds and sort of like a map in the sky and there's google land and there's ebay land and there's next netflix land and it's um the idea of a physical computer if if you've gone back sort of 30 years and asked children to draw that they would have drawn physical computers whereas the the, the modern kids had drawn these iconic versions they draw a little bird for twitter and they draw the icons you know a save button uh, a picture of a, a sort of a save icon the floppy disk icon to indicate the idea that there was there's a place somewhere in the in the abstract void that you could write data to um and and i think that theme maybe meshes with one of the ones i bring up in digital vegan about the the meat industry you know, I grew up in a little cottage farm where we, you know, I, I've at least had to round up the chickens knowing their fate. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have to actually kill them myself. But we, you know, we had a connection with our food at the very least. Um, in, in the kind of 70s and 80s, there was, you know, the uh, self-sufficiency fad. And people, well, we, I think we probably grew about like half of our own produce and sort of shared it with other people in the village. Well, you know, now everything is behind a curtain. You know, it's sort of Tesco's or Sainsbury's or whatever, and um, you've no idea where food comes from or, or what how how it grows. So, um, that's happened with technology. The same thing, and um, whether or not that connection can be re-established, uh, and um, what that what that would mean or how, I don't know. But it's definitely missing now. Yeah, and maybe that moving on to what we can do about this, you know, and there's two things. You, you, there's a fascinating thing you talk about in your book uh, about intelligence amplification, IA, as opposed to AI. And and it reminds me of something that um, I've been working on myself. It's not as fully realized as a theory, but it's a kind of like if it had a tagline, it would be burn your own energy that um, we, you know, this feeling or this sense that we are increasingly uh, replacing things that we could physically do and would be good for us, healthy and all sorts of things, mentally. Like, you know, if I, I instead of, if I, I, I don't send too many letters, physical letters anymore, but uh, if I have to send a letter, uh, I can never remember how much the postage was. So, you know, I'm always you know, going to Google, but I could remember it if I really made the effort, you know. So instead of using my memory or instead of, you know, uh, getting up and going out and doing something and that there's so many things that we could do um, physically uh, that are good for us and good for the planet, good for health, good for social interaction, good for, but we're, we're getting the technology to do it out of convenience because Amazon or whatever in, in, in the process. And I think it feels to me that there's a link, you know, that idea of burn your own energy, you know, rather than, you know, the energy of a, a device or a machine in the process. Uh, there's a, a kind of a connection with this concept you have uh, or intelligence amplification as 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 opposed to artificial intelligence, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about you know from the point of view of 
um, this seems like um, a path forward where none of us are saying, let's get rid of technology. That's not the debate remotely. But, you know, this seems like a potential path forward. Just give us give us a, a bit of insight on it. I, um, you know, there's a, a nice quote by the artist um, and writer uh, Max, Max Frisch. It says that technology is a way for humans to not experience the world. It's a way, it's um, uh, uh, the distancing effect, the action at a distance, um, the diffusion of responsibility, the, the, lots of the things that go along with technology put the world, that they, 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 they move us from the, out of the physical realm, from the material realm into the kind of world of pure thought, you know, and, and from the sort of enlightenment um, trajectory, that, that is kind of more noble, you know, it's the noble thing is to be, is to be pure thought. It's more godlike, you know. There's, there's a quasi-religion around technology. You have to accept that. Uh, it's, you know, it's there from it, it, Nietzsche's writing. And, you know, th- uh, interesting what comes from the German school, even Heidegger, uh, and people like that, who you can't even speak of these days, but they got it. They they said, you know, wow, there there is this, um, uh, and in Silicon Valley, there's the, the sort of cosmist thing still going on, where they just want to up- upload themselves into the cloud and become sort of non-embodied beings, um, immortal and omnipotent and so on. That there is this definite quasi-religious angle to to technological trajectories. And what, what that's doing, you know, is this is taking people... Um, into a realm in which they are um, foregoing, they are they are abrogating, abdicating responsibility for things. I think that convenience is a really dirty word. It's an insidious word because it's used so so easily, kind of slipped into a conversation. Oh well, that's convenient, isn't it? Without and, and it kind of stops examination. It's a uh, um, who would not want convenience? Well, you know. Too much convenience is going to kill you. Atrophy your muscles, atrophy your mind, uh, strip you of all agency, um, uh, self-determination. It's like any drug, you know. It's seductive, it pulls you in, and eventually... that, that you know, and It's an original deadly sin, isn't it? Sloth, I guess, is the one. It's sloth or um, uh, that, that tendency, what the Greeks would call towards Thanatos, towards death and forgetfulness, is a seductive side of, of technology that will do everything for you because it reduces you back to an infantile state of, of dependency. So um, how do you fight that? Well, you have to integrate technology um, in, in a kind of, as Aristotle and Heidegger and, and people like that had, had seen this, it becomes an extension of the mind-body. So the technology is uh, it's not a substitute for yourself, or an uh, an alternative for the self, but it's an extension of the self, and that is um, intel- intelligence amplification. Um, and it goes back to the old idea. You know, there's these two fundamentally conflicting models of technology. One is um, IA, which is that technology is a tool. It extends your mind body. Um, it allows you to amplify thought and action, and empowers you. Whereas the modern that the the, the, the trajectory that we're heading down with technology right now is more towards ai which is cybernetic governance um which is unthinking use of technology you know there's literally books on user interface design called don't make me think uh, in which your relationship with technology is don't worry it's going to do everything for you 
Um, so you can just regress and kind of lay back and um, into the land of milk and honey. And, it, you know, don't worry, the technology's got your back. Well, you know, that's that's the path to um, uh, to, to nihilistic non-existence, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting what you say there as well, that don't make me think, because that's a... Um, it's also a book in user experience, which for years I thought was, you know, the the amazing, you know, result, you know, the ultimate result of a good designer, uh, you know, would be, you know, making the process so that you're renewing your your car tax or whatever in the, you know, in a way that's so simple you don't have to think about it. You know, the steps are are really well designed and most people who would have been involved in that would not have thought of themselves as dystopian designers no not at all it's um it's crook crook isn't it crook uh, i think yeah i mean i'm not i'm not i don't want to rag on on him he's uh you know that there is a there is wisdom in that right there is from a if you reduce the scope of what you're thinking about to slick interaction then that don't make me think you know what that that's what what a great title and what a what a great way to do it but but what is the thing that you're not thinking about here's the 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 question what is it that you wish to push from your mind and you mentioned say you're like doing your tax well you'd like a very low friction slick way to do your tax let's take it to the limit why are you even doing your tax in the first place if it's something for which you want to abrogate all responsibility and knowledge and oversight why doesn't the government just do it for you right or, or somebody else or some other some machinery and so the question becomes well what is it that you wish to actively engage in in life what do you wish to have control over and why um because what we're actually creating with a lot of technology is just what um david graber calls it's like uh, bullshit bullshit economies it's a, a make work economy in which we write software to solve problems that don't exist so that people have kind of got something to do um um and and so often like as a sort of legacy of a a, a a job that existed before and it's now mutated into the digital domain and it carries on as a sort of zombie job where somebody's got to do that and you know you have a, a suite of software and things that do that but there's nobody really cares they just want to um what they'd really like is a little pecking bird that homer simpson has in the and the episode where he has to run the nuclear power plant from home do you remember that this is just like stupid bird, you know, it's pecking away at the Y key. Um, that's really what we're constructing with lots of technology. We might as well replace ourselves with, with small shells, with small scripts, with AI and things. That is a very dangerous path to go down. If all you're thinking about is how do I, how do I shrug agency and responsibility through technology? Um, you're left with nothing of your own life or society. Yeah. Now, I don't know if it's an example, exact example of intelligence amplification or human amplification, but it's something that I've been um, reading a lot about over the last couple of years, bicycles. And, you know, how um, that uh, a bicycle, um, if you go 10 kilometers on a bicycle versus walking 10 kilometers, there's actually less CO2 emitted cycling because of the energy of walking. So somebody did all these calculations that, that a bicycle was an, an amazing uh, device in that it was 
not just neutral, but almost positive uh, from, you know, uh, a waste uh, or, or energy consumption. But but connected with that, I, I, I'm seeing a lot about the cargo bikes now, the, the, the bikes that are battery. Of course, the battery on a cargo bike is, you know, 100 of, of the battery that's required from an electric uh, vehicle or, or certainly a vastly, vastly less. And there was a study recently which said that people who had bought cargo bikes were traveling or cycling tw- more than twice as much. So they were actually physically cycling more, but they were traveling, they were using the battery to go up hills. And so that the technology had worked in a way, you know, so the, the bicycle being an amazing technology, but actually adding a battery to the bicycle um, was was another amazing development because it, it got us fitter. We did more shopping, you know, that, that there are ways of bringing technology into our lives, which is good for the planet, is good for ourselves, you know, keeps us fit, keeps us thinking, might that be an example of or, or absolutely i mean what you're saying is is just a, a, a eminently sound philosophy it's a, it's a wisdom um you know the bicycle is already a, an optimal machine um it a, and then you're adding another optimal technology on top of that these are very small um relatively small capacity but efficient batteries and and, and good modern uh, motors uh, to, to augment that and what you end up with if you sort of to draw a landscape of the possibilities of technology is a local maxima it's a place where you know all of the things conspire to produce a a, a, a technology that's just good all round. you know it's like you say it's making you fit it's getting you outside it's it's a recyclable technology it's um super efficient you know and um we can have this we can absolutely have this in computing right but and I think that the reasons why we don't have it is um, it's not explained simply by our, our sub the fact that we haven't found it or some sort of suboptimal search. There, there, there are forces that have been conspiring for a long time and still are to give us suboptimal technologies because that is very profitable for some people. And if we can um, reconfigure technologies, especially through things like open source, free open source, free software, um, Open hardware, hardware which is, um, uh, for security reasons at least, it's um, verifiable. Um, but it's also stuff that's not going to get into the sort of disposal cycle because it's got security flaws. It can be reprogrammed. Um, it doesn't have these hidden enclaves, which are Intel and AMD now. It's absolute um, travesty what they're up to is modifying microprocessors to kind of make them defective by design to break them in ways that mean that at some point you won't be able to trust them anymore. So you just have to throw them away for security reasons. If if we can, you know, it's such a big landscape of things to fight against. But if you, you can, there is no reason why we can't have computing technology, which is very much like the kind of uh, electric bicycle that you describe. You know, it's just a win. It's a win-win technology. How do we get the change, right? So I look at this, there's three agents or three parties uh, at at play, there's there's the brands or the companies, there's the government, and there's the society, uh, and you know what? Certainly, what I see 
you know, in the path forward is, you know, we see the success of the right to repair movement where there's, okay, it's not got total success, but in, you know, about 10 years, there's loads of legislation rolling through uh, the European Union and, 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 and the United States. And that was just a, a small group of, of people. But I, I, I think that, to me, is the only place real change is going to come from is not from individuals and your individual carbon footprint and reducing it, although that's great, but it is it is by groups, us coming together uh, around interests like 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 the open source community, you know, and and, and that building that the creation of of these um, a kind of community level or or peer level type pressure groups that. Because I think a lot of politicians want to make the change, but they're scared. You know, they don't have the, uh, some of them are bought, I'm sure, in everything. But I think there's there's a, a big fear in the political space of these huge brands and the, and the power of the brands. And if, if there was enough societal pressure building, the, the society and the political system could, you know, um, make these large brands, because I'm not saying the big brands are evil or anything like that, but I think they're just in a system that they will they will never be the initiator of this change because they they make too much money off of and power is achieved too much. But that that idea to me is you know, if somebody's listening to this and you, you really, you know, collaborate, find a way of working with other people like you to to create a pressure group because I think it's the pressure groups that that emanate from the societal level that have the greatest chance to drive the change that we need need to see. Or what what do you think about that? Is it, or where? Or you know, to some of we're seeing someone's listening and saying, "What what can I do?" And you know, I, I give these webinars. And I say it's not enough for you to you know to say, "Ah, yeah, that's good." You got to become an evangelist today. Is or would you agree, disagree? What do you think? Well, well, let's because there's two kinds of strategies that we're talking about. Um, one is on the individual level, and one is kind of in organisational um, level, uh, coordination kind of thing. I think they're both important. I think um, individuals are still scared of technology. If we want to take back tech, we have to remember that there was in the seventies and eighties a a program of digital literacy, and it suited governments at the time to to teach people of all the amazing things that computers could do, so that we'd all become part of the digital economy, and that our our countries wouldn't be left behind, if you like. Um, that was very successful, you know, and it kickstarted the, the games industry and digital film industry, and just so much stuff. I mean, everything we know what microelectronic revolution has done; it's changed everything. But that was an incomplete. Uh, revolution you know there's a, a, a necessary for a second stage uh, um, digital literacy 2.0 if you like which is where people understand that there's a lot of bad things that computers can do and how do we stop them from doing that um, it's the kind of morning after the big party right that now we've we've been through the last 50 years and we're looking at what are the effects on society the threats to democracy the threats to mental health uh, potential for dystopian kind of tyranny through through technology and things like cashless society which would be an absolute catastrophe yeah um 
these things are um th until they're in the minds of people generally um there isn't that way to, to move to that next step of kind of collective thought and coordination because we don't have common uh, terminology and vocabulary and language and, and so on to understand the threats and the solutions. So um, on the one level, you do have as, a, as an individual to sort of step up and be that awkward, inconvenient person, you know, the the unreasonable man by from which all change comes, Um to say no, I, uh, you're at a restaurant and every and it's contactless, and they get um, scan this QR code and just be that awkward person who says no, and here's why, you know, and have your reasons for for saying it, or to be the person who's got the ten year old phone that looks really uncool, and um, there's you know there has to be an element of sort of self sacrifice or um, ability to step up and and make a statement on the individual level because people follow things like that you know they you think oh wow you're being so uncool right but then they look at you and you don't realize that they they kind of want to be like that right so they're like, wow you've got the you know you you're prepared to stand up for these why tell us and then there's an opportunity in the conversation to say well you know i i think about the environment i think about the education and mental health of the children i think about these people in faraway lands that are dying chopping up our e-waste there's a whole new conversation to have about the ecology and um socio politics of um of technology that's not around at the moment people are just kind of like grazing cows in the field just consuming um so be the icebreaker in that sense. But then when it comes to the, the collective um, mind, absolutely nothing is going to change until um, there, there, there is a, a, a new information landscape and new forces in the marketplace, like you know the open source movement, like the right to repair movement and things like that, 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 that can be seen as a much bigger visible uh, voice and a, and a movement for change um so we need both of those things but for definite yeah maybe we have reached peak peak attention you know um economy you know and and that um that'll have very interesting implications for for the tech industry yeah well you know you go to douglas adams for the answer to that so you remember the electric monks right the electric monks was a labor saving device that does your believing for you um and <laughs> you you can kind of see that happening with ai right so what ai is doing the way that it's being pushed and marketed to people is that it it, it takes over areas of your cognitive function and your social function and, and things your creative function so you don't now. Now you've got attention freed up to consume other things, and what you kind of end up with is this electronic device um, that's that's running. I mean, I I imagined this story. I had this story in my head. I'll share it. Of um, uh, and I thought I should write this as a piece of science fiction, um, of a guy who loses his phone. You know, and for, for days and days he's anxious and worrying about it, and then eventually he realizes that they're never going to find this phone. But then um starts getting like strange messages and things and what's happened is that the phone has just gone off and it's living its own, it's living its life for him to start with you know it's booking hotels and it's met another phone it's run off together um, because you know these devices have become de facto um citadels for so much of our lives that they they can once you add ai to that now they can function autonomously so eventually you know he's homeless and it's like um the phone's kind of taken over his what was his life and um 
that's where the AI is kind of going. So once we've reached capacity, that's that's not the limit. That's not the limit for if you follow that kind of um, appetitive, um, what's, I, I try not to use the word capitalism because that's not what I'm after. Um, it's uh, it's, it's expansive um, momentum for, for, for technology is that you don't need people anymore. Well, what happens then is that the technology starts to push the people out to the margins um, in accordance with, with, with all classic science fiction, you know, that's the, the, and you can see the realistic trajectory of how that would, would unfold in, in our technological society today. Um, we become so much more disconnected with the, the things that are elements of life for example, you know, you could have the, the thing kind of go and watch a film for you at the cinema and then kind of um, using that AI to give you a summary and um, tell you whether you really would have enjoyed going to see it or not, um, that, that kind of crazy talk. Could we design something that could last almost a lifetime, that it's a kind of framework, like you talked about interoperability, that, you know, you just keep replacing the screen, you know, or gradually... It does get replaced, but it's modularly replaced. Yeah, well, I mean, yes is the answer. Yes, but but for very small values of yes, because I kind of already have that. I've got a a um, heterogeneous technological life thing around me in my room now. I've got an, an old CRT monitor still. I've got a nineteen um, seventies telephone that I, I love. I've got it, I've, and I've rebuilt it so that it will work with a, a modern VOIP and stuff. So you can keep using technology and, and bring it back to life. But I, I think the answer is really no, for, but just because of the rate of advance in technologies. You, within 10 years, you get something which is so different and so much more advanced that it completely obsoletes the thing that came before it. And there's, it's very hard to physically make it um, connect and interoperate over such time, time scales. But however, if you if you build that in as a design criteria from the beginning, using sta- you know, through standards bodies, through interoperability frameworks, standardized connectors, and you have a a long term support and a life you know, a lifetime for them, which is measured in decades. Um, I mean, look, some connectors are still around, like the old RS two three two and Canon connectors, and they're still they're still used, right? They haven't changed since the seventies. But when you've got people at Apple making a new sort of lightning connector or something, and then the next year they change it to something else, that's not okay. That's just that's deliberately breaking forward interoperability. Um, so if you build that in from the beginning, yes, you could do that um, within limits. If you're interested in these sorts of ideas, please check out my book, Worldwide Waste, at jerrymcgovern.com. To hear other interesting podcasts, please visit thisishcd.com.